God seeks those who will worship him in what? Spirit and in truth. And so we got to do that today, and thank you for the leadership of it. Take your Bible, join me in John's Gospel, chapter 1. And as you're turning, I want to give public uh, gratitude to Mark Tatlock as our elder with the gift of announcements. Um, I'm just grateful for Mark's ability to do that. I do not have that gift, but I am grateful that he does, and he faithfully does it. And uh, so, Mark, I want to say thank you for how you serve us in that way. Uh, And if it's not your favorite thing, thanks for doing it, because it's a blessing to us. All right, who then is this is the title. This is part two. This is the afterglow of resurrection. I'm now calling it Victory Sunday. This is the beginning. We, this is the ending, Lord willing, the second piece of some questions I wanted to ask and answer really related to the core and most critical question that you can ask and answer. Everything turns on your answering correctly, who then is this? The person of Jesus Christ. This is meant, this two-parter is meant to strengthen and galvanize convictions that are not just meant to serve you unto salvation, because if you do not get who he is, you cannot enjoy the grace he came to provide. Secondly, it is meant to strengthen your sanctification, how you live for him, because being a Christian is grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he said he could do, and my response to that by faith and by obedience. So who then is this is a critical question. And I'm working through for I don't know how many times uh, A.W. Tozer's work on the pursuit of God. And I came across this quote this week, so I wanted to begin with it. Here it is, A.W. Tozer, in his work called The Incredible Christian, which is a excerpt is in The Pursuit of God. Here it is. The greatest need of the human personality is to experience God himself. This is because of who God is and who and what man is. The greatest need of the human personality is to experience God himself. And the reason that's the greatest need is because of who God is and who man is. And our subject today is focused on who God is, particularly the Son of God. Passion Week, as we reflected on last week, began with the people who received Jesus into Jerusalem saying, he's on that little cult uh, that Johnny reflected on about, He's coming into town. He's got a multitude behind him. He's got a multitude ahead of him. Palm branches are being waved. Coats are being put on the ground or the roadway. And he's coming into the city of David. And the people of God are asking God to save. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's how Passion Week began, Palm Monday. And in that expression of praise and worship, it birthed a question by the observers. Who then is this? Who is it that we're applauding and affirming? Who is it that the palm branches are being waved to acknowledge? Who is it? And then this answer, is this a prophet? Which is a partial answer. It is true, he is a prophet, but it's not a full answer. And as we reflected on last week, Islam believes that Jesus is a prophet, one of many prophets. But he's not God, he's not the Son of God, and he didn't die on a cross, he was taken directly to heaven, delivered by God, because God wouldn't allow him, this great prophet, not as great as Muhammad, they say, to endure that kind of an injustice. Jesus is who he says he is, and Jesus is who the witnesses say he is. I want you to read with me the beginning of the Gospel of John as a baseline to elevate the value of this question and answer. I uh, celebrated this week with uh, Carl Hargrove, who's teaching across the hallway. Um, Dr. Hargrove turned 60 recently, and uh, he invited me to share his joy, and we played a round of golf together. 
And uh, that was not joyful. Our fellowship was joyful, <laughs> unless you like searching for golf balls. But uh, during our ride together, we rode together in the golf cart, and he said to me, so Harry, if you had only one book of the Bible, which book would you pick? And for me, that's a relatively easy answer, and I'm going to say the, gospel, or the uh, epistle of Paul to the Romans. That's the book that I would pick if I had no other book. Because I think I can get at most of the rest of it through the content of this theological treatise on the realities of the way things are and the work of God on our behalf in the person of Jesus Christ. But as those words came out of my mouth, Carl, I would pick Romans. It rushed into my mind, but man, it's hard to pick Romans over John. Because John is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is one of the purest expressions of who Jesus is in the Word of God. It's readily accessible. And I want to begin with the Gospel of John today, and I want to punctuate some things. So this is a bit of a high-speed journey through these critical verses that set us up in terms of the motivation and importance of rightly viewing who this is. Because John is about that. He's going to begin his book with the identification of who Jesus is. Read with me, verse 1, in the beginning. So whenever the beginning occurred, creation, in the beginning was the word, past tense, logos. So the word is the reference to the identity of a person, reason, power, depending if you were Greek or uh, a Jew, you would look at the word as the creative force, the rationale, the wisdom that created everything, the logos. In the beginning was the Word. So whenever the Word was, excuse me, whenever the beginning was, the Word already was, which introduces you to the idea that of His eternality. And the Word was with God, personality. And the Word was God, deity. So it starts out with the declaration about the Lagos, verse 14, becoming flesh. This is who he is. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God, a punctuation of his eternal identity. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being, his creativity. And if you look at creation, we had an astronaut in chapel on Friday, um, Jeff Williams, who uh, was part of the Grace to You board, um, four times to the space station, commander of the space shuttle Atlantis, three times up with the Russians, spent uh, until recently the longest time of any human being on in space, 500 plus days. And he was showing pictures and giving witness to the creative glory of God from that vantage point. And you couldn't witness it in his description of it, at least for me, and I'm a front row parishioner, so I'm right there looking at those big screens, and I couldn't help but have tears in my eyes out of awe. And what verse 3 says is none of that came into being that, came, that, that exists without him. He's the creator. So you've got all the variety and all of the, the creativity and beauty and, and just the, the, the reality of creation the Word is the Creator, introducing us to His grand ability, the variety, the beauty, the Word. Verse 4, in Him was life, that's vitality, and the life was the light of men. Light as in rationality. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Introducing the idea of darkness and light, morality. So you have these qualities, these descriptors, then you have the witness of John who came to bear witness to his identity. Verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. So this is the true light who enlightens as it relates to reality. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, the created order. And I want you to notice verse 10, and the world did not know him. They did not get him. They didn't answer, if you will, correctly, who then is this? Deity, personality, creativity, vitality, morality, all of these revelations of reality of God housed in 
the living word. Verse 10, he was in the world. The world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own humanity, those made in his image, and particularly the Jewish people, came into his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, this is a key thing to understand. These descriptors of who he is, the people created by him, and who should of all people accept and welcome him. That's what the word receive means. The word decamai, it means to welcome. It's to identify and receive. Be like somebody knocking on your door. You identify who it is. You open the door and you welcome them in. That's the idea of receive. And they did, the created ones did not receive him or welcome him. But here's the verse I want you to contextually express and own today. But, adversative, but as many as received him, acknowledge and welcome, acknowledge for who he is and welcome him because of who he is, to them he gave the right. That's authority, that's capacity, that's ability, that's access. He gave the right to become children of God. Gave his grace because you receive him for who he is. All of the words that we reflected on, that's who he is. To as many as accept, welcome, and acknowledge him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, a part of the royal family, to become his children, and then this descriptor, which is a participle modifying what you do. You don't just receive him, but part of the expression of receiving him is trusting him, relying on him, believing, which is what verse 12 says, even to those who believe in his name. And that's, that's a construction in the Greek language, which means it's an active commitment of trust and reliance If you believe and trust and rely on, not just assent mentally to say, yeah, he was all those things. No, I'm going to welcome him into my life as Lord of creation, the light giver, the morality definer, the king of everything, the creator of everything, the God over everything, Jesus Christ, the son of God, the living word. I get it. I see it and I welcome him into my life, and I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to rely on his name, which is his person and his work. Now, notice what it says, verse 13. Therefore, these are ones who were born. This was a reference to being born again, chapter 3, who were born not of blood. So we enter into the, the, the kingdom of God and the family of God. We were born not of blood, that is, because of our family relationship, nor the will of the flesh, because we decided to in and on our own, nor of the will of men, so somebody didn't take us in, nor did we choose to get in, but the reason we're born again is because of the sovereign grace of the work of God. Who he is, all of the things John rehearsed. Why it matters, if you don't welcome him for who he is, you do not enjoy a relationship with him as a child in his family. That's why this matters so much. You can know partial things about the Son of God, but it is critical that you understand he's more than a prophet. It is critical that you understand he is who he says he is. Now turn with me again to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. And we uh, attempted to marshal some witnesses last week in answering the question, who then is this? And I'm going to give you the four things that I'm going to punctuate today so that you get them in order because we talked about two of them last week. The first one and the last one, and I skipped the two I want to talk about today. Who or what kind of man is this, Mark chapter 4, verse 41, that even the wind and the waves obey him? So we're going to use the witnesses, and we did, of the wind and the waves. And who would they say he is? Well, when he said, hush, be still, immediate peace, no rogue wind gusts, no ripples on the Sea of Galilee, it was peace and calm. So I argued that if you're going to 
use the witness of who he is with the testimony of the wind and the waves, the wind that died down, and it became perfectly calm, dead stop, all of it, which evoked the question, who then is this? The right answer would be, this is the sovereign Lord of creation. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is this man? Well, he's more than a prophet. Because prophet can stand all day long and make statements, authoritative statements about the winds and the waves, but the winds and the waves are not compelled to obey a mere prophet. But they do have to obey the sovereign Lord of creation. So who is he? Sovereign Lord of creation. Even the wind and the sea obey him. Mark four forty one. So what should happen to those who acknowledge and receive him. Welcome him. Well, if he's coming into your house and life as the Lord of creation, he's absolutely sovereign. He's sovereign and he rules over all. I wrote it this way. The radical, instant, total, and obvious obedience of the stormy sea and the raging winds identifies and verifies Jesus is the sovereign Lord of creation. He is the maker, ruler, and governor of every living thing. Welcome him. Because it is crucial to enjoying the life that he brings and the sanctifying abundance that is yours in Christ, salvation and abundant life. Number two, we're going to continue on in Mark chapter 5. And we're going to invite the witness of supernatural fallen beings. In the story of the demoniac, the Gerizim demoniac or Gadarene, some of your Bibles will say. Remember, Jesus got out of the boat after the calming of the wind and the sea and immediately entered into an area the country of the Gerizines, and he gets out of the boat, and a guy runs up to him who's possessed by the devil. He's demonically possessed, an unclean spirit, verse 2, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit. And there's descriptions about this man, how nobody can shackle him, control him. He's living among the graves because there's no civilized place for him to live. He's violent. He's hurtful. So there's this description about him, and then in verse 6, it's where we'll pick it up. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we, because there were a legion of demons, so multiples, what business do we have with each other, Jesus? And then this identifier. Son of the Most High God. Who then is this? Sovereign Lord of creation. And secondly, this is the crown prince of heaven. Described here by this demonic spirit. Son of the Most High God. Turn over to chapter 1 in the book of Mark. Because this is a testimony that was regular in the mouths of the demonic supernatural. So not just the natural world would bear witness to him, but the supernatural world bears witness to him. And we find that kind of drumbeat beginning in chapter 1. And by the way, the Son of the Most High God is a royal and a divine title. So he's saying Son of the Most High, the Most High, sovereign over everything, and you're his son, you're the one who enjoys divine and royal relationship. Chapter 1, the first encounter given in the book of Mark related to Jesus in the synagogue confronted by someone with an unclean spirit. That's verse 23. Just when then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. You know, there were fallen angels. Lucifer fell, one-third of heaven's hosts. They're supernatural, angelic, fallen beings who operate in the world in which we live, and they're on vivid display, their character and conduct here in the Gospels. 
in the presence of Jesus. And they say, verse 24, saying, What business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Here it is again, the Holy One of God. Verse 34, chapter 1, Jesus healed many who were ill with various diseases. He cast out many demons. He was not permitting the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew who he was. So he wanted to restrict their testimony of his identity and reality, I guess for the purposes of not evoking a greater following prematurely, because there was a timetable Jesus was on. My time has not yet come. So this popularity and this process he's in is governed by the sovereignty of God, but the demons would declare by necessity his identity. And it would sound like you are the Holy One of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. The healing on the Sabbath day has occurred. Talking about how he is ministering by his sovereign, unique healing power. Verse 10, for he had healed many, crowd had come, they were trying to crowd him, he had, because he had healed many with the result that those who <clears throat> had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him, whenever, look at verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and they would shout, you are the son of God. Now, what's interesting to me in part is the recognition that this is the last thing you would expect the enemy of God to do, and that is to validate the true identity of the Son of God. You have the high priest in chapter 14 of the book of Mark bringing Jesus forward to question him, and he questions Jesus, and he says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Most Blessed One? Chapter 14, verse 61. And Jesus said, verse 62, Mark 14, I am. Some people say Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, that's a bogus claim. Because in front of the high priest, with much at stake, the high priest asked the question, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, which is your Son of the Holy One? Same idea. Verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, That's because he's the privileged crown prince, the right hand of the Father, and coming with the clouds of heaven, which is a figure of speech referencing not cumulus clouds, but the armies of heaven. Johnny read it, Revelation chapter 19. He comes with the armies of God on the white horse, figurative for the armies of heaven, and the priest, having heard Jesus say, I am the blessed one. I'm the son of the blessed one. And the high priest tore his clothes, and he said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy, which is his way of saying the false claim of Jesus. How does it seem to you? He asked that question, and then they all condemned him, deserving to die because there's no way they were going to acknowledge the claim that I am son of the most high God. I am the son of the blessed one. So it's just ironic to me that the highest religious person can misidentify and say no to the claim that he is the son of the most high God, the crown prince of heaven, the one who's going to lead back the royal armies in a time of judgment, Revelation 19. And yet the demonic host, whenever they encountered him, the claim, and they shouted it, you are the Holy One of God. They get what religious people can't get or don't get often. You can be very religious and miss the point, but I'll tell you who doesn't miss the point. The witnesses of the fallen host, they know who he is. And every one of them in that encounter would not only confess it, his identity, but they would bow down in submission to that reality. Bowing down. So this is the enemies of God bearing witness to the truth 
about the identity of the Son of God. You are the crown prince of heaven. You're at the right hand. You're, the, the, you're enthroned in power and in great glory. Who do you say that I am? I am the crown prince of heaven. They acknowledge it. We should acknowledge it. It's incredible to me that an enemy would confess readily his identity. You know why? Because they have to. This would be like a Democrat affirming a Republican. (laughs) Or a Republican saying, you know, that's a great policy. There's no chance that's going to happen unless it has to happen. So the question is, who then is this? The crown prince of heaven. What does he deserve? Open confession. Overt and obvious worship, bowing down. Even the enemies have to do that. How much more those who affirm, embrace, and welcome him? Harry Walls ought to be a public confessor, an open and bold communicator of who Jesus Christ is. And my life ought to be a reflection of overt and obvious worship. They bowed down before him. So my question is, how are you doing with that? How are you doing that in the quiet place? You know, when you and God meet. If someone were watching, would they see by way of your body language and verbal affirmation somebody who acknowledges Jesus Christ is king and he is worthy of worship? Ever on your knees is their verbal and vivid expression of worship? He's worthy of that. How about the marketplace? First of all, do you speak his name? They had to. Secondly, how do you speak his name? Thirdly, do you bow your head in honor and in worship, maybe at a meal? Do you acknowledge Jesus and his identity as heaven's king and your most high sovereign? Would anybody who does life with you in the marketplace accuse you of acknowledging him and giving appropriate worship to him? And then I wrote, how about in the worship place? Do you prioritize weekly time to obviously and overtly worship him? And do those who worship with you see someone who's consumed by honor for him? This was personally convicting to me in the fact that I can come and worship, because I do often, and I can kind of zone in and zone out. Sometimes sing the songs and sometimes mouth the songs. And the convicting part is, if I get who he is and I grant what he deserves and desires, I'm going to worship sincerely, obviously, not not to promote interest or attention to oneself, but rightful glory for the one who is worthy. Who then is this? The King of heaven. The Son of the Most High God. What do you do even if you're his enemy? You're on your face and you acknowledge it. Number three, he is also the fearsome judge of all rebellion. The fearsome judge, not just the sovereign Lord of creation, not just the crown prince of heaven. He is the fearsome judge of all rebellion. The witness of the enemy of God who acknowledged his high station continued with, as was common, I implore you. This is Mark chapter 5, verse 7. I implore you, by God, do not torment me. The word implore means that this is a beg desperately because of a compelling concern, and that is they're in jeopardy. I am begging you, with a rightful fear to not torment me. The word for torment or torture is a word which means to, by examination, judicial procedure designed to torture and inflict 
punitive consequence, now get this, for the purpose of a confession. So not only is he saying, I'm, in, I'm vulnerable to judgment and painful consequences, but these painful judgment consequences are purposed to evoke rightful confessions about who he is and his right to rule and judge and their condition before him. In other words, I'm not guiltless. An examination by torture, metaphorically, it is the instrument of torture he's seeking to avoid by which one is forced to divulge the truth. And his reasonable response is, how can I avoid these consequences? It's not time. I don't want to endure that today. And he becomes a praying demon because he says, I implore you, I'm begging you, don't bring torment to me. Turn with me to the book of Jude. And this is the common confession of these ungodly witnesses. Matthew 8, 29, torment me before the time. So there's a reference to a time of eminent judgment. Johnny read the passage for me. He didn't know it, but I would have invited you to it because there's coming a day when he comes in power and glory to bring judgment upon those who have rebelled on the earth. He's the fearsome judge of all rebellion. And we ought to respond as this demonic being responded if you are vulnerable to that judgment. And I want to, as before we look at Jude, just listen to this. Jesus is not only the judge in judgment of demons, he is the judge of everyone. Listen to the confession of John 5, and just listen. John 5, 22. Listen to what Jesus says that gives perspective about his role as judge. Verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, Jesus says, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And judgment is not just sentencing, it's execution. John 5, 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he, verse 27, the Father gave him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man which is a way of saying he is the perfect judge for humanity because he was a man and understands the challenges, temptations, and the experiences and trials of humanity. He is equipped and qualified to judge. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice, resurrection of the unrighteous dead and and shall come forth, and those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Who is Jesus Christ? This is sobering. He's not just the sovereign Lord of creation. He's not just the crown prince of heaven. He is the fearful judge of all rebellion. Supernatural wickedness and human wickedness. That's why Jude wrote this letter. He wrote this little epistle, one of the shortest uh, books in the New Testament, not the shortest, but one of them, one chapter, and is written to remind people in part of the danger of rebellion, resistance. Verse 4, Jude for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And I wrote in my Bible margin, not obvious. So you can be in the body of Christ, you can be associated with the things of God, and you can creep in unnoticed. Certain persons. Those who were long beforehand marked out for what? Condemnation. Ungodly persons. So what are the descriptors of the ungodly, not obvious persons marked out for condemnation? Those who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, that's unholiness, 
and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to argue they're not denying him by their words. They're denying him by their actions. So the subject has to do with people who are in the community of faith, who are not obvious, but instead of enjoying salvation, they're in danger of condemnation. And the characteristics that define them involve licentiousness, which is this fleshliness, preaching grace, but denying holiness. And you have that in our culture today. You've got pastors who stand up and celebrate the grace of God and ignore the call of God to be like Christ. I'm a failure morally, and I'm celebrating the grace that redeems me as if the grace that redeemed me isn't to transform me. Listen, I'm glad for the grace that changed me. I'm glad for the fact that I'm not in danger of hell because of the conduct of my life having been changed by the grace of God. That it's the righteousness I've been given that satisfies the judgment requirement of God. But there will be people in the body and community of professing faith who talk about it, who do not have it. And they don't have it because they're characterized, verse 4, of self-interest, unholiness. And by that unholy life, they deny by their actions, watch the words, the only master and Lord, the sovereign Lord of creation. Now, what happens next is what? A sobering reminder of the vulnerability of those who reject his lordship and his identity as the Savior and Master, the only one, Jesus Christ. They're invulnerable to judgment. Verse 5, I want to remind you, Jude says, and Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, so he's the, the brother of James, the book that we're normally studying. So Jude is his half-brother, or Jesus' half-brother and full brother to James. And he said, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, in other words, you're familiar with the things that have been taught, but I want to remind you of something that you've heard about and actually should know. Here it is, verse 5, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, the Exodus, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So he's going to give a witness of the reality of the consequences of eminent judgment to the rebellion. And the rebellion referenced here in verse 5 is Pharaoh and the Egyptians who rebelled against God and subsequently were destroyed because they didn't want. They didn't believe. They didn't trust. They didn't identify and submit to the declarations of God's revelation about himself or his requirements. Verse 6, second illustration. And angels who did not keep their own domain. So these are fallen angels, demonic spirits, but abandoned their proper abode. Okay, that's a reference probably to Genesis 6 where the sons of God cohabitated with the children of men. So you have angelic fallen beings after men abandoning their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So they're in a holding cell waiting for the final judgment which will occur in that great day, the great white throne of God. Verse 7, third illustration. This is all about judgment. The, the Egyptians were judged, swallowed up in judgment in the drowning, the wave of judgment, these angels incarcerated, eternal bonds, future judgment. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So you've got the angels going after strange flesh and you've got the men in Sodom wanting the angels. 
So you've got this debauchery as an example of the licentious immorality that is characterizing the behavior and heart of some of these who have crept in, and they were judged, verse 7, indulged in gross immorality when after strange flesh, now watch this, they're exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So when you think Sodom and Gomorrah, you should think of the example of judgment of God upon the rebellion of men. I'm going to blow you off. I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to saturate and satiate my flesh. I'm going to go after my own appetites and desires, irrespective of your prescriptive commandments and laws and rules. And I'm going to do my own thing. And like these, licentious and denying the master who has the only Lord and Savior and the consequence of ignoring who he is results in a reality because of what he does because of who else he is, the judge of all rebellion. Verse 14, Jude. It was also about these men, and this is a reference to some of the leaders that were inciting this ungodly behavior. It was about these men that Enoch... He walked with God and he was not. In the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. When is that? Johnny read it. Revelation 19. The return of the king of kings on a white charger called Faithful and True, robe dipped in blood, bringing judgment with the armies of heaven, The Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, look at verse 15, to execute judgment upon all, and I circled all, and to convict all, the ungodly of all, their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Did you see the reoccurrence of a word ungodly? Did you see the words execute judgment on all the ungodly who do ungodly things in ungodly ways and they're doing it as a rejection, verbal and action that rebels against his sovereign rule and authority and there's consequences. He's coming. Verse 16, and I spent some time with my staff in this verse this week because this was a source of meditation. It was just so sobering to think of the ungodly descriptors, the characteristics of the ungodly who will endure judgment. And by the way, I'm not trying to bury you today. What I'm trying to do is calibrate you today. Verse 16, these are grumblers. Who are the ungodly? They're grumblers. And they are fault finders. And the only two times these words are used in the Bible, well, it's the only time these words are used in the New Testament. Complainers and grumblers. Fault finders. Finding fault with whom? Everybody and anybody, including God. I'm the judgment standard of all behavior. I judge God, that's not good, that's not right, you shouldn't do it. I judge you, that's not right, you shouldn't do it. I'm the judge and jury of every action, which makes me the fault finder. I'm a grumbler, I'm a complainer, I'm a fault finder, following after their own lusts. I am a self-gratifier. My engine is about my passions and satisfactions. My life is defined, those who are ungodly, in the pursuit of my own satisfactions. They speak arrogantly, which I think is the heart of all of this. They are governed by an overhigh opinion of their opinion, and they speak out of that pride, and they flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. You know what flattery is? Flattery is Harry telling you what you want to hear, so you give me what I want from you. Flattery is verbal manipulation. 
So they are self-gratifying, they are self-promoting, and they are manipulatively using people. These, verse 16, are the descriptors of the ungodly who are in jeopardy of grave judgment. To execute judgment upon all and to convict them all. That's eminent, that's a reality, and it's focused on those who are characterized by these qualities. Brett brought this up at our staff meeting on Friday. The interesting thing about these characteristics in verse 16 is they can also not be obvious. Grumbling may not be obvious because it's under your breath. Finding fault may not be obvious. Speaking arrogantly, flattering people, could, I could seem sincere when in fact I'm not. These are characteristics of what I'm going to call justified self-centeredness, which God's going to call ungodliness. And ungodliness is a contradiction to who he is as God, denying him by what we say or by what we do. And there are a host of people who are in jeopardy of a guaranteed for sure judgment upon all rebellion. Second Peter, we don't have time to look at it today. There are mockers who say, who is God and when is he coming? A lot of days have gone by and he's not come back yet. And Peter says, well, they have a problem. They forget the fact that there was a flood, global judgment. They overlook the fact that that happened at the word of God, judgment of water. There's a future judgment of fire. And by the way, with God, the time measurements are different. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So don't underestimate nor mock or overlook the reality of eminent consequences. God is not mocked. What you sow, you reap. And there are consequences to ignore who he is as Lord and Master by choosing to do things that violate and deny that high station. Who is Jesus Christ? Fearful judge of all rebellion. And therefore, we ought to prepare if we are in harm's way because some of us will be in that group. I'm blowing God off. Jesus is not my Lord and I'm not welcoming him. Grave jeopardy because of a promised reality. Number two, as a Christian, which is what Peter was talking about, you have the challenge of the eminence of his coming and Peter says that coming and that reality is called is meant to call us to repentance and we ought to be the kind of people who live holy and godly because of the reality of who he is let me conclude with this judgment is part of the gospel message This is Acts chapter 10. This is Peter's message to the Gentiles. And it's meant to be a motivation, this reality of the identity of Jesus Christ and justice to come is to be a prompter to something called repentance, which is a change of life and direction. Listen to verse 40 of of, uh, Acts chapter 10. Peter's testimony, his message God raised him up on the third day. That's a reference to Jesus, obviously, the resurrection. And granted that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen, 500 plus witnesses, chosen beforehand by God. That is to us, the apostles, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Now listen to verse 42, Peter's testimony. He was resurrected, and he, God, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, think identity, who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Part of the gospel message is Jesus' identity, not just as the Lamb of God, but as the judge of God, 
the living and the dead. Now listen to verse 43. Of him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, the judge, the crown prince of heaven, the Lord of creation, that through his name, Jesus Christ, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Truly, truly, John 5, 24, here's a promise. Jesus said, I say unto you, he who hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Who is he? Fearful judge of all rebellion. But he's also the provider as the Lamb of God of eternal salvation because he bore the judgment I'm vulnerable to unless he becomes my scapegoat and the Lamb of God who endured God's justice on the cross, which we highlighted last week. Validating God accepted that. He came alive from the dead. And I love John 5, 24, Jesus talking. If you believe the one whom God has sent, you have eternal life and you do not come into judgment. You're passed out of death and the vulnerability of eternal justice into eternal life. That's who he is, the deliverer, the life giver, the defeater of death, and the provider of eternal salvation to those vulnerable to eternal condemnation. That's who he is. What do you do? You do what anybody who would do, who acknowledge that. You communicate it. He ordered them to preach it. We ought to share it. And if we're vulnerable to loss, we ought to deal with it so we can enjoy the life he alone gives. Can you say amen to that? Somebody's counting on us to share that good news. Father, thank you for the gift of your word and the reality of the identity of Jesus Christ, the most critical identity to understand, acknowledge, and accept, to welcome into our life, to receive him, gaining the authority to become sons of God, part of his family, believing in his name and enjoying life, not because we're a part of a human family or because we manipulate that or somebody else provides it for our benefit, but we trust you and we're born from above by confessing the reality of what you've done for us because of who you are to us. Lord, I pray for my Cornerstone family, and I pray for us as brothers and sisters that will rightly identify and rightly verbalize and testify to who Jesus is and the good news that saves because of who he is. Both its eminent return, justice, or salvation. Help us to be faithful. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.